So he looked up in the night sky and what he saw was amazing. No one, no human being had ever seen any of this before. And as you say, it completely turned on its head what we thought about ourselves and our place in the world. What was observed by us in the third place is the nature or matter of the Milky Way itself, which, with the aid of the spyglass, may be observed so well that all the disputes that for so many generations have vexed philosophers are destroyed by visible certainty, and we are liberated from wordy arguments. Wow, what a quotation from Galileo Galilei, of course, from his book, 1610, Starry Messenger, which is such a wonderful title for a book. I've always loved that. You probably guessed what the subject of today's episode is. Welcome to the show. I'm Dallas Campbell. Welcome to Patented. It's a podcast all about the history and the stories of inventions brought to you by History Hit. I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, Susan Denham-Wade. She's the author of A History of Seeing in 11 Inventions, which touches on a whole host of seeing inventions that have changed the world. But today we're going to talk about, well, what I think really is the mother of all inventions, the telescope. The first invention, perhaps, to truly extend a human sense, taking seeing far beyond anyone's natural ability, beyond the bounds of our earthly horizons. It's not an exaggeration to say that it changed everything. It opened our eyes literally and philosophically and metaphorically to the true reality of nature and even more importantly, our place in the universe. But did Galileo invent the telescope as is commonly thought? And if not, who did? And does seeing as a sense, does it outweigh or overpower our other senses? Have we become perhaps overly reliant on it? I'm going to be talking about all these things and more with Susan. Susan, welcome to the show. That's a pleasure. It's a delight to be here. It's one of these really annoying things because we're going to talk a little bit about telescopes today. Mm-hmm. And I got sent your book, which I'm holding up here. And the annoying thing is I read the chapter on the telescope and then um, I got so engrossed in it, I had to read the entire book. Yay! <laughs> and now I've got too many questions to ask you. I'm like, oh God, do we have to just talk about telescopes? Oh. I want to talk about everything. <laughs> it's such an interesting book. Oh, well, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Well, hey, it's a show about inventions. So we're going to, and your book is about inventions. You talk about the history of seeing in 11 inventions but it's much more than a book about inventions it's about well it's a sort of philosophy as much as anything else and you touch on all kinds of interesting topics and interesting subjects and it's just it's really really fascinating you know looking through a telescope i'm just imagining galileo look i know looking through a telescope at the night sky it is a humbling experience yeah everyone should do it at some point yes but just before we talk about telescopes just explain how you got into this subject how the book became what was its genesis because you're forward of the book you started a very specific point in 2015 with a an internet meme yes exactly so i mean i've always been interested in ideas and creativity and where ideas came from and and i'm also have been all my life very blind 
So I'm interested in seeing from that point of view. I had a long interaction with the technology of seeing through spectacles, contact lenses, blah, blah, blah. And in February 2015, I was completely fascinated by the internet meme of the dress, which was an image of a dress, a stripy dress that appeared online and People who looked at it couldn't agree, even if they were standing next to each other in the same room at the same time, whether the image of the dress or whether the dress itself rather was white and gold or blue and black. And this completely blew my mind because, you know, as far as I knew, seeing is an objective process. But that got me wondering then. So I dug into, you know, why that was the case, what was going on. But it also got me wondering about, well, if two people in the same room at the same time can look at the same thing and see something different, how did people in other times and places see their worlds? Was that different? And that was the beginning of the journey. Oh, it's so interesting because, of course, seeing, (laughs) as you point out, seeing is the most subjective thing. We all like to think we are completely objective in the way that we see the world. But, of course, none of us are objective, apart from myself, obviously. The way I see the world (laughs) is the correct way of seeing things. But I always think, you know, we are just kind of brains in a vat. We're brains in this dark vat the in, inside our skull, and we have this information coming in through our eyes. And as you say, we it's our brains that pro- turn that into electrical signals, and we process it all very, very differently. Yeah. And, you know, what fascinated me was that the process of seeing from the very outset in terms of what your eyes pay attention to, for example, how your eyes move around the scene, is all actually dictated by culture and memory and the stuff that is in our, the thinking part of our brain, although the subconscious part of our brain, but then that actually dictates all these processes that we think are objective, physical, sort of scientific processes, and they're not. Yeah. Yeah, so that was the beginning. Oh, my goodness. So, okay, we can spend the rest of our life. It's a really terrific book. I absolutely loved it. It's fantastic, right, and you. I recommend <laughs> it. I'm a bit annoyed that I've only just discovered it because it came out a couple of years ago, I think, or 2019, I think it came out. Mm-hmm. And it's just terrific. Anyway, that's the plug of your book, done. Thank you. So, okay, well, we can explore this idea of subjectivity and objectivity and beliefs and everything via the parasing through the invention of the telescope. And that's what I want to sort of talk a little bit about today. And of course, when we think about the invention of the telescope, regular listeners or or those who know their history will, of course, the name that springs to mind is Galileo. But it wasn't Galileo who invented the telescope, was it? No, it wasn't. So the telescope was invented. It it wasn't long before Galileo started making telescopes, but it was a year before, 1608. A Dutch lens maker, spectacle maker called Hans Lippehey presented a device to Prince Morris, the commander of the Dutch forces, that he described as a device for seeing distant objects as if they were near. And this was a two lenses in a tube with a, a larger convex lens at one end and a concave lens at the other. And this magnified what the viewer was looking through and made it appear closer. It wasn't particularly good. It was only three times magnification, but he, the prince was very excited about this. He was in a summit at the time with French and Spanish dignitaries because they were all at war. He showed it proudly to the French and the Spanish. He gave Lippehey a, a letter of recommendation, which he took off to the patent office and tried to get a patent for this device. The patent office said, we're not going to do it. It's too easy to copy. And sure enough, they were right, because within weeks, the news of this invention had spread and people were starting to make their own versions and copy this idea. Other claims of, of precedence came forward 
as well of other people who claimed that they'd come up with the idea first. So there was never a patent issued. That's really interesting. It seems to be one of those inventions that, I don't know, in your research, what do you think? Do you think there were telescopes before him? What was his name again? Lieben, Lieben, Hans Lieberhey. Do you think there were telescopes before that? Because as the patent office said, it's basically just two lenses. So it's a pretty simple thing to invent. Yeah. Do you think there were lots of them around before or people were experimenting yeah. with them and just no one had got around to going, hey, look, this could be useful? I think that's probably highly likely. I mean, there was, you know, the knowledge of optics had been around for centuries. Glass had gone through technological improvements a couple of centuries earlier. Spectacles were invented late 13th century. So, and they'd been sort of slowly improving in the time since then. And I think going back, right, right back to ancient times, because they've been astronomers for thousands of years, if you looked just through a tube without a lens, that will improve your vision of what you're looking at, especially in a night sky, because it closes out other light and allows you to focus more directly. So, so the idea of looking through a tube for improved vision is an old one, an ancient one. And then, as I say, the underpinning things of optics knowledge and glass technology were improving you know, at a pace through around that time. So it was only a matter of time. Yeah. Well, I wonder you know, how long have we had sort of glass lenses? Because presumably, you know, we have lenses in our eye and I'm kind of imagining people long before Galileo understanding how lenses work and experimenting with lenses. Presumably we had things like magnifying glasses before telescopes. Yeah. Yeah. No, we have. We've had magnifying stones, though they're called reading stones. We used, I think, from around the 10th century, you know, which were glass, plano convex, so that means curved on top and flat on the bottom. So, and they would just put that over what they're reading to magnify the writing. Uh, but going right back to Roman times and before, Seneca, a Roman poet, commented that looking through a bowl of water magnifies what's beneath it and that could help older people with reading. But that idea didn't catch on. But then going back further than that, in the place what's supposedly Troy, you know, they've found lenses and some ancient statues, but no one knows whether they were just decorative or whether they were actually used optically. And then Nero famously looked through a sapphire, so or a emerald, I think it was, you know, at stuff going on in the Colosseum and stuff. So we've been interested in optics for a long time. We've been experimenting with lenses of various different kinds, and then suddenly Lippehay, Hans Lippehay, comes up with this idea of sticking two lenses, a concave and a convex, in a tube. And lo and behold... We have a telescope. Yes. So what year? Are we, this is 1608, I think, isn't it? Or 1608. Okay. If ever there was an invention that changed the world, I mean, we can argue about printing presses and stuff, but the telescope completely revolutionized everything in terms of our place in the universe. And of course, we can thank Galileo. So where does Galileo fit into the telescope story? And why do we like to credit Galileo with the telescope? Well, so he appeared very soon, you know, very early on in the story. So Lippa Haig takes his invention to the Hague. It's the patents rejected. The news spreads like wildfire across Europe. People start making copies, you know, copying this invention and making their own version. Galileo in so 1609, so not much later, he's a professor of mathematics at the University of Padua. He hears about this. He goes along to the his local spectacle maker and buys some lenses and makes his own telescope. And then over time, he he's already he's a quite a proficient designer and maker of scientific instruments. So he's a guy who is always short of cash and he has a little side hustle alongside his teaching work where he makes scientific instruments for his pupils and does private tutoring and so on. So he starts grinding his own lenses to make them better and fiddles around and makes better and better sort of generations of telescope to a, a point where 
he claims he has a 30 times magnification. The, the liver hay one was about three times magnification. So it's 10 times as good. And what I think is really what makes him so famous in the story is that he used his telescope to look up at the night sky rather than looking out, which was the initial thought in terms of the usefulness of telescopes. So he looked up in the night sky and what he saw was amazing. No one, no human being had ever seen any of this before. And as you say, it completely turned on its head what we thought about ourselves and our place in the world. Are we in a sort of geocentric universe still? Are we still, so it's 16, early 1600s. Is the Earth at the centre of the universe still? Is that is that the perceived wisdom? Very much so. Because so, we've had Copernicus. Copernicus, he first put his theory of a sun-centric universe forward in 1514. And he sort of discussed it with some people. He wrote, wrote a little bit about it. But it sort of stayed quite below the radar. It just sort of moved around intellectual circles as as an idea and a discussion. It wasn't published until 1543. So that's still 60 years before now. But when it was published, because this was a very tumultuous time in Europe and there were questions about whether a heliocentric model was consistent with scriptures and no one wanted to you know, get on the wrong side of the Inquisition. And actually Copernicus was a devout man, so he, he genuinely didn't want to challenge the scriptures. There was a preface inserted in, into the publication of his theory at the last minute by his assistant, and it said that this was a mathematical theory, not necessarily a physical theory. So it was kind of a bit of a sort of, I didn't inhale sort of positioning of this theory that kept it, arguably that's what kept it out of the controversial category and off the forbidden books list until Galileo came along. Yeah. So Galileo comes along. Yeah. So now, so we're still very much in, the, oh, and in between Copernicus and Galileo, there's Tycho Brahe. He comes along with a sort of a bit of a half and half model. So there are different models of the universe out there. Different people, both scientists and clergy, have different views of which is the correct one. No one really knows because it's all about calculations. So along comes Galileo with his telescope, his better telescope. He looks up at the sky. He sees that the moon has craters and mountains. It's not a perfect sphere, like Aristotle had said. He sees that there are many, many hundreds more stars than we realised in the sky. And most importantly, he sees around Jupiter four little planets that are in a straight line alongside Jupiter or rather sort of going across Jupiter. And they follow Jupiter as it makes its passage through the zodiac band of the sky, which is the the band where the planets have been known for thousands of years to make their passage through the sky in the course of the year. These four little planets tagged along with Jupiter and changed order from time to time, according to his observations. And so he concluded that those little planets, which we now call moons, must be orbiting Jupiter. And this was revolutionary because it meant that it demonstrated that there was something that didn't orbit the Earth, i.e. these little planets slash moons. So that was revolutionary. But actually, when it first came out, Galileo, you know, it didn't cause a huge stir when he wrote all this down in almost a pamphlet, really, a short book called The Starry Messenger. It had pictures of what he'd seen sketches of what he'd seen and laid out these amazing, amazing things that he'd seen. And there was lots of interest in it. It was sensational. But it wasn't until a few years later that this church started getting concerned about this book. And it seems to me that it was down to Galileo's fairly obnoxious, pugnacious manner 
that he started making enemies because you know anyone who challenged him he was quite dismissive of and obnoxious to so people got annoyed sounds like a kind of twitter conversation you could imagine yeah. galileo on twitter being <laughs> slightly obnoxious and getting yeah. trolled by whoever yeah yeah i think that's a perfect analogy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this eventually, in 1660, he does finally get, so this is what, five years, six years after he's published his book, he gets brought in before the Inquisition and his book and Copernicus's book both get put on the index of forbidden books. So he's slapped on the wrist, he's not punished. So, you know, he discovered the sort of inconvenient truth by pointing his telescope up to the sky and seeing the world as it was. Yeah. The reaction to that by the orthodoxy, by the church, and because, you know, he was sort of famously imprisoned, Galilee. Was that the time that it all sort of kicked off for him? No, no, that took quite a bit longer. So he published his first book in 1610, and that, as I say, it caused a bit of a stir, but not for a while, not until he started getting people's backs up by, you know, if any theologians made any comments on his theory, he would, you know, he dismissed them and said, you should keep out of this, you know, stick to your religious stuff. But actually, uh, one of the popes was very generous to him and had asked him lots of questions about it. And so he went back to his, after the 1616 slap on the wrist, he went back to his heliocentric studies and published in 1632 a dialogue on the two world systems. And this was written in a scholastic manner where he had three characters who were having a discussion about the world. And one of the characters is called Simplicio. He's the Earth-centric character who's asked, who's making the case for an Earth-centric model. And he's written up as an idiot, basically. And enemies of Galileo said, oh, you've based that character on the Pope. And the Pope got very angry, and this was when he was hauled in again to the Inquisition, forced to recant any allegiance to a heliocentric theory and subjected to house arrest for the rest of his life, which was the next nine years. It's a really good – I mean, you mentioned the, right at the beginning of this conversation the, the meme dress about how we see the world differently and how we see what believing is seeing. You know, we see whatever we want to believe. And I think this is the sort of classic example. I mean, I suppose it's in one way, it's the beginnings of it is the beginnings of the modern scientific revolution, isn't it? This particular invention, because suddenly Galileo was challenging this idea of what it is to see, because it's not about believing, it's about actually looking at evidence. And I mean, people must have thought of it before. But this was the time when it just exploded everything. If there were ever a paradigm shift, this was it, this invention. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, Aristotle himself, when the thinking of the Greeks came back into Europe in the 12th and 13th century, you know, there was a renewed interest in using one's senses. You know, that had been almost specifically, or it had been specifically discouraged by the church for hundreds of years. You know, then people were told instead just to rely on doctrine and just take it that is the settled truth and there's no question. But definitely with the invention of the telescope, that supercharged this interest in observation and experiment and using one's senses to figure out what is truth and evidence to prove an argument yes. as opposed to deductive logic or yeah. doctrine. History tells us that in 1455, the royal houses of Lancaster and York went to war beginning a 30-year dynastic struggle for the throne that would change the course of English history forever. It became known as the Wars of the Roses. At 
this time, the Wars of the Roses are well underway. There's so much uncertainty throughout the country and who's going to come through all of this. This month, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out all the answers to your burning questions. People have just assumed the Bullfords were bad. But when was this scribbled in? It's effectively an act of graffiti on a parliamentary roll. Who were the key players? What were the critical battles and switches of allegiance? Was it ever really a case of good and bad? Join me, Matt Lewis, on the Gone Medieval podcast from History Hit every Saturday for brand new episodes. So from Galileo, and of course, then the telescope got better and better. And then you had people like, oh, you mentioned Tarko Brahe and the other great yeah. figures of the scientific revolution of that time. And then on to people like sort of William Herschel and Caroline Herschel. Telescopes got bigger and we saw the universe and we saw nature with an increasing clarity. So just take us through some of those stages, if you would. Yeah. You know, from Galileo's early sketches of the moon, his, the discovery of the, the Galilean moons of Jupiter. Just take us through some of those, those other people. So. Quite quickly after Galileo, the technology and the capability of the telescope continued to improve quite quickly. Not long after Galileo, an Italian called Zuccio or Zuccio played around with the idea of a reflecting telescope using mirrors rather than lenses. It didn't actually get off the ground until Newton managed to make good enough mirrors to act to get it to make a working reflecting telescope. So Newton always gets the credit for, for inventing the reflecting telescope. But various others you know, the telescopes themselves were improving. And then importantly, people started making up, um, other observations. So about 50 years after, well, exactly 50 years after Galileo, Christian Huygens, Huygens discovered the rings of Saturn. And then it was in the 18th century, the Herschels, as you mentioned, William and his sister Caroline made enormous telescopes and they discovered Uranus. Uh, so that was the first new planet that was discovered in many, many centuries. And that expanded the world because it, it's further out within our solar system. And then in 1846, a Frenchman called Le Verrier, so this is now post-Newton's theories of gravity, he was a mathematician. He calculated that Uranus wasn't behaving as it should according to Newton's theory of gravity. So there must be some big object exerting some sort of pull over it and predicted that there was a big planet. And the, he sent his prediction to the Berlin Observatory. And that very night, the observatory trained their telescopes onto the spot in the sky where Leveria had predicted. And sure enough, there was Neptune, another planet discovered and another expansion of the universe. And then we moved on to the next big mind-blowing expansion of the universe was Edward Hubble in the 1920s. And he had his telescope set up in Los Angeles and discovered that we were part of the Milky Way, but that galaxy is one of many galaxies. And that expanded the universe thousands of times, and now we know that it's actually infinite. And the universe is expanding. And it's expanding, yeah. Yeah, exactly. One of the other great things about, I suppose, about the invention of the telescope as well, and actually being able to look at these points of light, or just with our eyes, you can as far as the eye can see, as it were, the telescope extends our eye. And of course... Those points of light for millennia we'd looked at in wonder and wondered what they were suddenly became bodies. And we then imagined who might be living out there. And the fact that there's all these wonderful stories about 
selenites and people living on the moon and martians and extraterrestrials and that whole subject which had belonged in our minds suddenly had a canvas to be projected onto yeah yeah no it is quite amazing how quickly people's imaginations sort of accepted this new version of reality and then projected as you say stories 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 we love stories such as the possibility of life elsewhere well, that's what I mean. The telescope extends the eye, but it also extends the imagination. And all those things that were sort of limited in our minds suddenly exploded into all these possibilities. Yeah. You mentioned actually that, you know, that Edwin Hubble, of course, who yeah. in the Mount Wilson Observatory looked through his telescope and saw the universe expanding. And of course, the Hubble telescope, you know, if we think about modern telescopes, if we think about old-fashioned telescopes, the beginnings of the European scientific revolution, the actual Hubble telescope, being able to send telescopes above the Earth, you know, above the atmosphere, so we're not restricted by the atmosphere, into orbit. Again, absolutely revolutionary, I think. I think when you look at the Hubble ultra-deep field image, which is one of the most famous astronomical photographs ever taken, it is mind-bending how good it is. No, it is mind-bending. You know, it's impossible to conceive of the universe as the size that it is. You know, and this idea that the latest telescopes are, you know, now there's the James Webb that's been launched and so on, that they're reaching out 13-odd billion light years away, which is the whole history of the universe as far as we know. So what happens? What are we going to see when we get to the edge, if there is an edge, of that, you know, pre-Big Bang? Yeah, that's the interesting thing. And also the, the thing is when, you know, when Galileo and others were looking through their telescope with lenses, you're seeing such a small bit of the electromagnetic spectrum. You are seeing visible light. And of course, visible light is only one tiny part of under... It's like looking through a little crack in order to see the natural world, in order to see nature. But suddenly, you know, being able to look in the infrared and other bits of the electromagnetic spectrum, we'll be able to see so much more. And also, I think the thing that perhaps Galileo didn't realise when he was experimenting with lenses, and Lieberhey perhaps didn't realise that actually invented a time machine. Because as you say, a telescope is a time machine. It's a way of looking back in time. Yeah, as you say, you know, yes. When you're looking out at something 100 light years away, you're not looking at something that's going on right now. You're looking 100 years ago, by definition. So, you know, everything we see has happened. So (laughs) a lot of it happened before we even existed. Well, exactly. But I have to say, getting your head around the concept of the universe and dark matter and and so is mind-blowing. But I actually find even more mind-blowing the idea that thousands of years ago, literally thousands of years ago, people using a stick and tablets of clay and their eyes looking out in the sky night after night, making diagrams, using a completely different number system than we use now, were able to make such accurate observations and calculations that they could say, oh, in 423 days at 11 p.m., there's going to be an eclipse. That's amazing. It is amazing. You're absolutely, I still don't understand it. You know, I've read all, you know, <laughs> how on earth, I went to the eclipse in America whenever it was, 2016. Oh yeah, I was there too, yeah. You know, we did all the maths, we worked out where we had to go and lo and behold, there it was, right on cue. And still, even though I'm like, wow, it is mind-blowing. And actually, I think we celebrate the telescope and rightly so for igniting the scientific revolution. But the scientific method is really the thing that the telescope, I think, set off. It's the fact that, Understanding the universe isn't just about believing. It isn't just about orthodoxy. Mm. or It's actually about just looking at the data and kind of going with that. And mm-hmm. it's such a somersault for the human brain to do, having not done it for, yeah. well, I don't know. I mean, we always credit the 1600s as the beginnings of the scientific revolution. I don't think that's true. People were doing science long before that. But 
it's a useful place, I think, to sort of put that idea in, perhaps. Yeah. And I think that's where it was codified, if you like, you know, by Francis mm, yes, Bacon exactly. and so on. Of, this is a new way of appreciating the world, you know, by observation, experiment yeah. and evidence. Yeah. And Roger Bacon, actually. We did a thing, I did a piece about Roger Bacon earlier on, of course, going back yeah. even further, who predicted ideas yes, of telescopes. Yes, he absolutely did. Yeah. All the bacon. I always get my bacons confused. Yeah. No, they're very confusing. But, and then, you know, not to forget the Arabic scholars who, you know, Al-Hazan, yeah. he is really credited as the potential father of the scientific method because he conducted physical experiments and made observations too. So, and that's several centuries before that. Exactly right. We get very Eurocentric about the scientific revolution. So that's a good point. Actually, just quickly, just while we're on the, the subject of, of the physical telescope and sort of back then, it was interesting that you said, well, sort of Galileo didn't invent the telescope. He experimented with lenses and tubes, but and, and perhaps the first person to kind of look up at the night sky. Presumably telescopes back then in a chaotic Europe, particularly, was a, a useful military tool as well. I mean, I, I wondered... Did the military cotton on to the fact that telescopes could be very handy for armies and navies? Oh, yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, that was what Liverhay was really trying to get his prince interested in, was the telescope as a military instrument. And, of course, that time as well was the time of coming to the end of the age of discovery um, and moving on to the age of, age of colonialism. So there's this great race from the European the big European powers to get around the world and establish colonies. So it's a, a huge era of maritime travel and telescopes were absolutely indispensable for those um, huge fleets of ships making very long journeys. Yeah. There was another nice bit in your book, which I liked, you know, you, you mentioned that and, and also you mentioned opera glasses as well. There was a, a sort of <laughs> cultural element to bringing things closer to the eye. The fact that the opera glass, you could see people on stage. Yeah, they were very fashionable and very beautiful. Yeah. And then Samuel Pepys writes about, as you might expect from him, he writes, you know, about how he'd used his spyglass. I think I think he said it was at church, you know, to spy on some particularly um, pretty ladies that he, you know, called. <laughs> so yeah, not always for Charming. scientific purposes. No, but it's technology is there to extend ourselves, and of course, sight. The argument is that sight is perhaps our most precious, our most useful sense. I don't know how we I don't know how that one measures that but we like to kind of prioritize sight I think don't we over other things. Well yeah but but actually one of the things that I observe in the book and you know hadn't really occurred to me until I'd sat down to and pulled it all together was that the series of visual inventions that I described so starting with fire and going all through including obviously the, the telescope and ending with the smartphone has gradually promoted sight higher and higher. So it, while it may well always have been physically our dominant sense, in terms of how we used our senses, how people lived thousands of years ago was a much more multi-sensory and the usage of our senses was much more distributed around our daily life. Whereas modern world, you, know, you and I are talking to each other over a screen, staring at a screen, probably spend a fair amount of the rest of the day staring at one screen or other. Everyday life in the in the 21st century has been channeled more and more and more, going back thousands of years through our sight. More than any other sense, I suppose, you know, the phrase seeing is believing, we tend to prioritise objectivity as sight. Sight is the thing that is real, even though, as you point out right at the beginning, the dress is clearly gold, by the way. Did you have a, I mean... I saw white and gold, yeah, but me it's too. blue and black. Is it? <laughs> in fact, it's blue and black. Crikey. It is weird. Yeah, we don't like to think that we are deceived by our sights, but there you go. 
No, but actually you you saying that seeing is believing, that is a very modern thought. We're talking about the scientific revolution. Before the scientific revolution, seeing wasn't believing. No. So that is, it's a very modern point of view. Listen, I absolutely loved your book and I want people to go away and read it. And I'm just wondering, sort of a couple of years on now, what was your sort of takeaway thought having written the book? What was the kind of one thing that you that really sort of fascinated you about the book or you that, that maybe changed your perception of sight and how we perceive the world? Well, I think it was this idea that sight is so subjective, you know, and it just runs through everything. But as I say, as I was sort of saying about senses, I have actually been more attentive to my other senses, ironically, having written this book, because they all play an important part in our well-being and in our experience of the world. So ironically, I've actually tried to use my eyes a little bit less since writing the book and attend more to my other senses. Hey, we can talk about other inventions, though. You can come back on. We can talk about spectacles. Love to. We can talk iPhones. We can do all all that kind of stuff. You've given me lots and lots of food for thought. And yes, A History of Seeing in 11 Inventions. It's fantastic. Please go and read it. And thank you very much for joining us, Susan. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much to Susan for joining me. Absolutely fascinating discussion. And Susan's book, I have to say, it's absolutely brilliant. It's not just about the telescope. As I mentioned before, it touches on a a whole host of different inventions, and I think you'll really, really enjoy it. I'll see you next time. Don't forget that if you've got a, a story or an invention that you would like me to investigate because you're interested in it, or perhaps it's a story that you know very well and you'd like me to tell, get in touch and we'll stick it on our increasingly long list. I'll see you next time. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Folk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.